It's the 12th of May, 2019, a fevered night in downtown Toronto. The city is ablaze with anticipation, consumed by a singular obsession. Even diehard Leafs fans have forsaken the iconic snow white and royal blue hues for the ominous black and red. The reason? The Toronto Raptors, the basketball titans of the North, find themselves embroiled in a heated second round series, culminating in a climactic game seven against the formidable Philadelphia 76ers. A triumph tonight would propel the Raptors into the conference finals for the second time in franchise history, presenting them with an opportunity to etch their name in the annals of basketball history as the first non-American team to grace the NBA Finals. Such a feat would stand as the crowning achievement for the Raptors organization, potentially delivering Toronto its first Major League Sports Championship outside of MLS and CFL since the Blue Jays won back-to-back -back World Series in 92 and 93. But let's rewind and unravel the narrative that led the Raptors to this pivotal juncture. While the intricacies of this saga could fill an entire episode, we're not a sports podcast. The Coles Notes version is that a few years earlier, the Raptors owners went and hired a brash young basketball executive named Masai Ujiri. Ujiri knew Toronto had potential, but the squad needed a shakeup. Boy, did he shake things up. One of the biggest moves was to fire Dwayne Casey and install a first-time coach named Nick Nurse. This was an audacious move because Casey had just won Coach of the Year and guided the Raptors to a franchise record 59 wins. Ujiri's second audacious move saw the dismantling of the beloved duo of DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. DeRozan, the heart and soul of Toronto basketball, was traded to the San Antonio Spurs along with Jakob Perto and a first-round draft pick in exchange for the enigmatic Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green. At the time, Leonard, if he stayed healthy, was arguably the best player in the NBA. And that's a colossal if. Guess what? The gamble paid off. Kawhi delivered one of his finest seasons, coupled with the acquisition of Marcus Saul from the Memphis Grizzlies, transforming the Raptors into a formidable force heading into the 2019 NBA playoffs. Toronto cruised past the Orlando Magic in the first round, alleviating the perennial anxiety of first-round playoff exits that have plagued Raptors fans. Fast forward to our starting point. The Raptors now find themselves in a do-or-die showdown against the Philadelphia 76ers. Adding an extra layer of drama, the Raptors' most agonizing playoff defeat to date was previously against the, you guessed it, 76ers. The stakes are high, and memories of Vince Carter's missed shot in the dying seconds of that game still linger, shrouded in heartbreak. The significance of this Game 7 is palpable. A loss here would mark the end of the Kawhi experiment, the Ujiri experiment, leaving Raptors fans to endure another summer of yearning for a brighter tomorrow. The game is deadlocked at 90-90, with a mere four seconds remaining. Marc Gasol inballs the bound to Kawhi Leonard, positioned at the top of the key. A balletic sequence unfolds as Kawhi navigates defenders, dribbling into the corner nearest the team benches. The clock ticks down. Three seconds. Two seconds. One second. Kawhi, 
in the corner executes a fading, gravity-defying shot, falling back and finding himself in a sitting squatting position. Is this the dagger? Time stands still. The ball hangs in the air, descending in slow motion. The ball hits the rim. One bounce. It seems as if Kawhi, in his squatted position, is mimicking the ball. Two bounces. Kawhi bounces back. Three bounces. Kawhi bounces back. Four bounces. The ball drops in. triumphed 92-90. The faces of the 76ers freeze in the agony of defeat while Toronto players erupt in jubilation and Raptors fans lose themselves in unbridled ecstasy. The city is plunged into a frenzy having just witnessed one of the greatest sports moments in Toronto history. And the game winner, 41 points. The Toronto Raptors would go on to beat the Milwaukee Bucks in the Eastern Conference Final and then silence mostly American critics by beating the perennial champion Golden State Warriors in Game 6 of the NBA Finals to become champions, forever making history and cementing basketball as Toronto's other favorite sport. On this episode of Muddy York, we're diving headfirst into the rich tapestry of Toronto's basketball history a sport that's perennially played second fiddle to almighty hockey. But hey, it's time to give it the spotlight it deserves. Stick with us as we explore the history of basketball in Toronto. Learn one of the most interesting facts that the inaugural NBA game went down right in our fair city. It's a tale of hoops, heart, and a city that's more than just about pucks. This is Muddy York. See, basketball is a sport we can call our own. It's a fact you might have known forever, but just in case you missed the memo, basketball was invented by a Canadian. Not just any Canadian, mind you, an Ontarian to be specific. If you're a child of the 90s and early 2000s like me, you may recall those glorious sick days away from school when you found yourself planted in front of the TV. The Price is Right, dash of Judge Judy, and if your parents worked, you might have snuck in some Ricky Lake and Jerry Spring. Nestled between those 90s TV gems, you would often be served up pieces of Canadian history in the form of Canadian Heritage Minutes. If you don't know, Canadian Heritage Minutes were minute-long history segments that aired during commercial time on Canadian television. These informative spots were always memorable, and one of the best ones was about the invention of basketball by James Naismith. In the segment, you find Naismith in a gym trying to teach a bunch of American athletes the new sport of basketball. There are some hilarious quotable moments. Uh, my favorite is the one where it says, uh, is this some sort of Canadian joke? And I need these baskets back. Well, if you remember it, let's take a listen. Canadian jokes, sir? I mean, I know you're the instructor and everything, but we can't carry the ball. How can we get a decent shot at the, uh, 
change, but I was scared. <laughs> All right. Maybe we can allow a carry of a couple of steps. And Mr. Naismith, sir, it sure slows things down having to climb up here every time. Well, then let's cut the bottom out of the basket. Oh, but I need these baskets back. A hundred years after James Naismith from Almont, Ontario invented it, basketball was being played by hundreds of millions of people around the world. You can find the link to the clip, the full clip, on our Facebook and Twitter feeds. Although invented in the U.S., basketball did matriculate quickly north of the border. While we were unable to unearth the very first basketball game in the city, it seems as if one of the first organized basketball teams that faced any real competition were the Varsity Blues of the University of Toronto. The first University of Toronto men's basketball team was formed in the 1907-08 season and games were played against McGill and Queens. There was no formal intercollegiate league until the following year when the Intercollegiate Basketball Union was formed in 1908. U of T won the first official intercollegiate championship in the spring of 1909 after victories over McGill and Queens and became the first recipient of the Wilson Cup presented by Harold Wilson of Toronto. The varsity senior team also took home the top spot in 1911 and 1913. After the 1914-15 season, the Intercollegiate Basketball Union ceased to function and games were suspended until the end of World War I. The reorganization of the league came in the fall of 1919 with Toronto tying for the championship with McGill that season and winning it outright in the 1920-21 season. The University of Western Ontario joined the Senior League in the 1924-25 season. In 1938-39, an unusual situation arose when the season culminated in a three-way tie between Toronto, Western, and McGill. Despite repeated efforts, this tie could not be broken, and a triple championship was declared. Then, after the 1939-40 season, the league was suspended again for the duration of World War II. The four-team league resumed play in 1945 and 46 and will continue to grow, adding more schools and becoming the modern competitive collegiate league it is today. Post-World War II basketball in Toronto was established as a regular fixture in schools across the city, with most offering a program for boys and sometimes also for girls. In the second half of the 1940s, Toronto started to make its mark in the modern game of basketball as we know it today. In 1946, the Basketball Association of America, or BAA, was founded and included teams from across the Northeast and Midwest United States, as well as our fair city of Toronto. The BAA would last for three seasons until absorbing the National Basketball League and rebranding as the National Basketball Association, or NBA. You may have heard of it. Known as the Toronto Huskies, Toronto's entry into this league was a ragtag group of ballers that was part of the first professional basketball season in North America. Although only lasting one season, the Toronto Huskies planted the seeds of love for basketball in this city. How Toronto wound up in the original Basketball League is pretty interesting. In 1946, a group of North American arena owners came together to discuss the possibility of adding a new sport to their arenas to increase overall attendance. Remember, unless they're hosting a game or an event, 
arenas just sit there soaking up cash. So picture this, a room filled with sports executives fixated on filling empty dates. For Canadian content, a special delegation representing Maple Leaf Gardens was sent to ensure that Toronto got in on the action. The delegation featured prominent Toronto businessmen, including Ben Newman and Frank Selke Sr., who was the steward of Maple Leaf Gardens. The BAA was formed and the delegation worked. Toronto had a basketball team. The price of admission was a cool $150,000, $2.5 million in today's currency. Getting a team in the NBA today will cost you roughly that times about 1,000. The funds for the team were raised courtesy of Bay Street backers led by Eric Craddock, who was also pivotal in establishing the CFL. I genuinely believe we had a shot at making it work, mused Ben Newman, the man at the helm, reflecting on the birth of the Toronto Huskies. But fate had other plans. The saga unfolded with Newman's father falling ill, forcing Ben to relinquish his hardwood dreams for the family scrap and steel business in St. Catharines. The struggle was real, folks. The team was hindered by unfavorable home dates, zero media cooperation, and to top it off, the team didn't do the one thing they were supposed to do, be good at basketball. To be blunt, the team was below average at best. To get people to games, the Huskies resorted to gimmicks like free stockings for women or free admission challenges. Now, here's the party fact for the episode. The BAA merged with the NBL to become the NBA. The first game ever played in the BAA took place at Maple Leaf Gardens, featuring the New York Knickerbockers and the Toronto Huskies, which means that the origins of the NBA come from our fair city. To get people to the game, the Huskies challenged the city by proclaiming that anyone taller than their tallest player, George Nostrand at six foot eight, got free admission. They didn't have to give out any free admissions that night. Finding someone over 6'8 is surprisingly difficult, especially back in the 40s. We've got an image of uh, that contest and that challenge if you want to look on our Twitter or Facebook pages. The first game ended in a 68-66 loss for the Huskies in front of 7,090 spectators. Unfortunately, this inaugural game was probably a highlight for the franchise. Reality started to set in Attendance dwindled, losses piled up, and owners estimated their losses at a staggering $100,000 for the season. The front office, led by managing director Lou Heyman and president Charles Watson, grappled with the team's turmoil. But after only one season, things started to wind down for the Huskies. Huskies disbanding in 1947, and the Toronto Raptors not established until 1994, what was basketball like in Toronto during all that downtime? Notable high school teams and the University of Toronto continued to make a mark, but it wasn't until the 1970s that basketball started making a resurgence in Toronto. If the basketball gods had spun a different tale in the tumultuous 70s, Toronto might be reminiscing about a relocated franchise today instead of our beloved Toronto Raptors. If Howard Ballard, the once owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, got his way, then we may have been rooting for the Toronto Braves. In the late 70s, the NBA flirted with Toronto through Buffalo Braves games hosted at Maple Leaf Gardens. 
The Braves were an okay team facing financial issues, and Toronto wanted an NBA franchise. The deal was incredibly close to being finalized. Ultimately, the plan to relocate the Braves faced financial chaos and a series of curveballs inevitably delaying the NBA's return to Toronto. Harold Ballard's son, Bill, running Maple Leaf Gardens during his father's legal entanglements, discussed Toronto dates with Braves owner Paul Schneider. A series of legal battles ensued, but by 74, the Braves played 10 games in Toronto, averaging 7,600 attendees. Yet, challenges persisted. Notably, the chilly court temperature that led to player protests. See, back then, <laughs> they were so cheap with this, they didn't even bother removing the ice at Maple Leaf Gardens. They just put the wooden hardwood right on the floor, and water started to seep up. Players hated it. They were cold. They were damp. It wasn't a good time. Those of you who remember the Ballard regime will know that's exactly the kind of stunt he would pull. By 1975, the deal for the Braves was officially dead, and Toronto had to wait for another opportunity to get a major pro basketball team in the city. Enter the 1980s. Adam, have you ever heard of the Toronto Towers? I had heard the name before, but I couldn't have told you what they were. Torontonians may not remember this, but years before the Raptors, the Cleveland Cavaliers almost became Toronto's NBA franchise. It was close. They even had a name and a logo. Mind you, it wasn't a good name or a good logo, but they did have one. Ted Stepien was the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. And let's say he was not a good owner. Stepien just didn't have any real basketball knowledge. He's famously known for trading away first-round draft picks and getting nothing in return. He traded away every first-round draft pick the Cavs had from 1983 to 1986, and he literally received nothing substantial in return. His decisions were so bad that the NBA League Commissioner, Larry O'Brien, put a moratorium on draft pick trades for the Cavs and then had the NBA institute a rule that teams could not trade away first-round draft picks in consecutive years. Dubbed the Stepien Rule, it still exists today. The current owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Dan Snyder, is quoted as saying the following about Stepien. He's the worst owner in the history of professional sports. That's not a subjective opinion. That's objective opinion. It's important to remember that worst owner in professional sports is a very competitive category. So this is a real accomplishment for Ted Stepien. <laughs> in 1983, Stepien started to see the writing on the wall and he wanted out. The Cavs were embarrassingly bad, only racking up 66 wins in three years and going through a bevy of coaches. This isn't a joke. Stepien, in an act of last resort, he hired, get this, his local softball coach to coach a professional NBA basketball team. Hey, would you be surprised that it didn't work out? After losing millions of dollars and dealing with comically low attendance figures at the Richfield Coliseum, Stepien decided it was time for a change of scenery. Toronto presents the most appealing scenario for Stepien, who purported to have lined up several investors ticket sale guarantees, and support from local politicians. Stepien wanted to name the new Toronto NBA franchise the Toronto Towers. Like we said, in our opinion, not the best name. Luckily for the future of the Toronto Raptors, Dan Schneider and a group of Cleveland business owners put up the money to keep the Cavaliers in Cleveland. Was basketball over for Stepien in Toronto? Mm, not quite. 
While the BAA was becoming the NBA, there were still other professional basketball leagues out there. Stepien, who never gave up on the idea of having a basketball team in Toronto, finally did it. In May 1983, Stepien made a bold move, acquiring a franchise in the CBA, the Continental Basketball League, and he brought it to Toronto. Say hello to the Toronto Tornadoes. They had the exact same logo as the defunct Toronto Towers. So not only was Stepien not a great sports owner, he clearly wasn't very creative. Again, if you want to see this logo too, check out our Facebook and Twitter feeds. We've got it up there. Almost immediately, things didn't go well for Stepien or the Tornadoes. The management structure faced turbulence when Malcolm Kelly, initially the team's publicist, assumed the GM role briefly in December 1984, only to resign within weeks expressing frustration with Stepien. Following this, Keith Fowler, who doubled as assistant coach, took over as head coach later in the season. The University of Toronto's Varsity Arena became the home ground for the team, and in its inaugural 1983-84 season, it attracted an average of 1,224 fans across 22 home games. Unfortunately, the fan base dwindled to 850 in the second season. As the third season progressed, Stepien estimated losses at a staggering $700,000 US over the first initial two seasons. He finally made a mid-season decision to relocate the team to Pensacola, Florida, renaming it Pensacola Tornadoes. Still not very creative. In the late 1980s, the notion of relocating or adding an NBA franchise to Toronto began to gain momentum again. Then NBA commissioner David Stern, reflecting on the expansion, characterized Toronto as a safe step, underscoring the city's market size and the likelihood of success. The NBA actively embraced the prospect, orchestrating two exhibition games in 89 and 92, both drawing crowds of 25,000 at the newly constructed Skydome. You may remember that the Buffalo Bills tried a similar experiment a few years ago to much less success. On November 4th, 1993, the formal creation of the team took place when the NBA Board of Governors endorsed the decision of the expansion committee. They bestowed the 28th franchise upon a group led by Toronto businessman John Bitov, who clinched the historic expansion for the then record fee of $125 million. That would be a huge bargain today. The ownership landscape featured Bitov, Alan Slate of Slate Communications, each holding a 44% stake, with minority partners including the Bank of Nova Scotia, former Premier of Ontario David Peterson, and Phil Granovsky. The inaugural appearance of the Raptors alongside the Vancouver Grizzlies unfolded on November 3, 1995. Amid initial sentiments leaning towards resurrecting the Huskies' nickname, Raptors management realized that it would be hard to design a Husky logo that was distinct from the logo of the Minnesota Timberwolves. Huskies and Wolves do look quite a bit alike, and that would create confusion in the marketplace. Recognizing this predicament, a nationwide contest was initiated to solicit ideas for the team's name, colors, and logo. From over 2,000 entries, 11 prospects emerged. Beavers, Bobcats, Dragons, Grizzlies, Hogs, Raptors, Scorpions, T-Rex, Tarantulas, Terriers, and Towers. Now, a few comments. Uh, one, 
Towers, which was the eventual runner-up, was just a proof that we could not quite get rid of that name. Uh, Second, the Toronto Beavers would be a very interesting experiment with the emergence of the internet soon after. And the third is that my two-year-old nephew would like to retroactively vote for T-Rex, an animal with which he is obsessed. And I think it's important that his voice be heard. But (laughs) the definitive choice, Toronto Raptors, made its debut on Canadian national TV on May 15th, 1994. Now, Obviously, this decision was heavily influenced by the popularity of the 1993 film adaptation of Michael Crichton's novel, Jurassic Park. The name Raptor drew from the informal nickname for the Velociraptor, a dinosaur that's featured prominently in the film. The unveiling continued a week later as the team's logo and its inaugural GM, Isaiah Thomas, were presented during a press conference. The team's vibrant colors, bright red, purple, black, and silver, specifically Naismith silver, were unveiled in honor of James Naismith. Initially placed in the central division, the Raptors made a resounding return of professional basketball to Canada, with merchandise sales ranking seventh in the league, even before the inaugural season commenced. Post-expansion draft, the Raptors found themselves with the seventh pick in the NBA draft lottery, trailing their fellow 1995 expansion counterpart, the Vancouver Grizzlies. Thomas, the general manager, seized the opportunity by choosing Damon Stoudemire, a point guard hailing from Arizona, to serve as the linchpin for the franchise's imminent future. However, the selection of Stoudemire was met with a chorus of boos from fans at the 1995 NBA draft hosted at Skydome in Toronto as many expressed a preference for Ed O'Bannon of UCLA, the NCAA Final Four's most valuable player. Considering most of you probably have never heard of Ed O'Bannon, this was a good choice to go with Damon Stoudemire. In the inaugural NBA game for the Raptors, Alvin Robertson etched his name in history by scoring the team's first points, while Damon Stoudemire recorded a notable 10 points and 10 assists, leading to a triumphant 94-79 victory over the New Jersey Nets. Despite concluding their debut season with a 21-61 win-loss record, the Raptors managed a remarkable defeat by being one of the few teams to defeat Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls, who boasted a then-all-time NBA best 72-10 win-loss regular season record. Stoudemire's stellar performance with the average of 19 points and 9.3 assists per game earned him the coveted 1995-96 Rookie of the Year award. On February 12, 1998, Maple Leaf Gardens LTD, the owners of the Toronto Maple Leafs, acquired 100% ownership of the Raptors and the arena they were constructing, the Air Canada Centre. They got this from Alan Slate and the Bank of Nova Scotia. Maple Leaf Gardens LTD later rebranded itself as Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, MLSC. You may have heard of it. They made the purchase of the franchise for a reported $476 million. This included $179 million for the team and a $288 million contribution for the arena. During the 1998 NBA draft, in a defining move for the franchise, new general manager Glenn Grunwald traded the fourth overall pick, Antoine Jameson, to the Golden State Warriors for Vince Carter. He was selected fifth overall. Despite not making the playoffs, the Raptors saw significant improvement with 
Vince Carter being named as Rookie of the Year and Tracy McGrady truly flourishing. This instilled optimism in the Raptors' future. The 2002-2003 season commenced, and a dull and uninspiring season turned out to be a blessing in disguise when the Raptors secured the fourth overall pick in the 2003 NBA Draft, bringing in another rising star, Chris Bosh. Fast forwarding a bit, the 2006-07 season marked a pivotal moment in the trajectory of the Raptors franchise. A comprehensive overhaul of the roster unfolded, featuring strategic moves such as selecting Andrea Bargnani as the number one pick in the 2006 draft. Additionally, the team orchestrated the exchange of Charlie Villanueva for point guard TJ Ford and secured the talents of shooting guard Anthony Parker and small forward Jorge Garbajosa. The Raptors unveiled a new black alternate road jersey reminiscent of an earlier purple design, adorned with a maple leaf on the back neck symbolizing the team as Canada's team. Despite the addition of O'Neill's rebounding and shot-blocking prowess and Bargnani's considerable improvement, the team faced inconsistency. The season began with an 8-9 record leading to the dismissal of head coach Sam Mitchell, who was succeeded by longtime assistant and one-time Team Canada head coach Jay Triano. Triano's adjustments to the starting lineup couldn't reverse the tide, and with a record of 21-34 and 34 before the All-Star break, the team faced challenges. O'Neill and Jamario Moon were traded to Miami for Sean Marion and Marcus Banks, but the losses continued, pushing the Raptors out of playoff contention with seven games remaining in the regular season. Ultimately, the team concluded the season with a 33-49 and 49 record, setting the stage for a potential overhaul of the core roster. Looking ahead to the 2009-2010 season, we see a lack of progress with only one bright spot. The Raptors secured DeMar DeRozan with the ninth pick in the draft, bringing the city a future star on and off the court. Now we are moving forward just a little bit again, but it's important to look at the 2015-16 season. It was a defining period for the Raptors. With a 105-97 win against the Atlanta Hawks on March 30th, 2016, they achieved their first ever 50-win season. This is a big deal in the NBA. The Raptors clinched the Atlantic Division title for the third consecutive season, finishing with a franchise-best 56-26 record. In the playoffs, they triumphed over the Indiana Pacers and the Miami Heat, advancing to the Eastern Conference Finals for the first time in franchise history. Despite the remarkable journey, they fell to the Cleveland Cavaliers in the series. In subsequent seasons, strategic trades were executed, notably acquiring Serge Ibaka in 2017. The Raptors showcased their dominance, securing playoff berths and clinching division titles. However, playoff success remained elusive, leading to the aforementioned dismissal of head coach Dwayne Casey in 2018, with Nick Nurse taking over. This brings us back to where the episode started. As you know, the Raptors did realize their ultimate goal in 2019, winning the NBA championship and being immortalized as a championship franchise forever. After the 2019 season, Kawhi Leonard decided not to re-sign with the Raptors and instead go and play for his hometown in Los Angeles, where he signed with the Los Angeles Clippers. So far, the Raps have yet to regain any of that 2019 magic. 
Currently, the Raptors are led by all-star Pascal Siakam and an incredible third-year player, Scotty Barnes. The future of the Raptors is bright. Speaking of the future, on May 13th of last year, Toronto welcomed the Women's National Basketball Association, or WNBA, as the Chicago Sky and Minnesota Lynx graced the hardwood court at Scotiabank Arena with the WNBA logo at the center. This was a great move to acknowledge the power of women's sport and the increasing popularity of basketball in the city, a sport that continually tries to be as inclusive as it can be. The Raptors, while champions in their own right, aren't the greatest basketball champions in the city. To end this podcast, we want to acknowledge the Toronto Championship team from Eastern Commerce, who have also been immortalized in a great Toronto documentary called Eastern by Toronto filmmaker Luke Galati. In 2001, Eastern Commerce won the first of four consecutive provincial championships. The school's prowess became so revered that aspiring teenage basketball talents from across the city sought enrollment at this institution near Greenwood and Danforth. A ticket to Eastern Commerce was synonymous with a shot at greatness, with dozens of players earning coveted scholarships to prestigious U.S. colleges. Yet the echoes of those glorious days have now faded into the recesses of history. In a melancholic twist, the school bid farewell succumbing to the inevitable decline in enrollment in its area and dwindling down to a mere 62 students. They really did have a great high school team. And if you have a chance to watch that documentary, it's a really good look at a slice of life in Toronto and how basketball as a sport uplifts community members and really brings together the entire city. It's quite a good watch, so I definitely suggest it. And honestly, we could talk about basketball for a long time in this podcast. I was actually quite surprised of how much information I could dig up to find out about this great sport. But at the end of the day, we're wrapping it up. So thank you for sticking along. It's been a great episode. Um, Adam, do you have anything you want to add? You can find us on Twitter at muddy underscore history or on Facebook at facebook.com slash muddy york history, all one word. Thanks for listening and we'll be back in a few weeks.